Uh, I used to like <laughs> be deathly afraid of of the idea of like having to Skype and like having to yeah, right? <laughs> having to do Hello and welcome to This Should Work, session 21, an interview with Sasha Neri and the last part of our Educational Makerspaces series. Uh, Sasha is um, oh, just a really great person. I've known Sasha for a while now. She sits on the board for the Idea Realization Lab at DePaul University, um, but more importantly, during her, her daytime hours, uh, she runs the makerspace out of Harold Washington Library, which is the premier library uh, in Chicago and in the Chicago Public Library system. So I'm really happy to have Sasha with us today, and I hope you enjoy this interview. As always, if you like This Should Work, subscribe, give us a comment on iTunes, share the podcast with your friends, um, and send us suggestions for people who, who you'd like to hear us interview as well. Okay, without further ado, this is Sasha Neri, session 21 of This Should Work. So, uh, we're here with Sasha Neri, and this is episode 21, I believe, of This Should Work. Um, Sasha runs the, the, the maker, makerspace at Harold Washington Library. Is, is that correct that you run it? I don't know what your official title is, Sasha, but I, I know that you're, you know, you're, you're one of the, pe- the people who, who um, you're the only person who I really know who does, does a lot of work there. Yeah, so I got involved early on when the space opened in 2013. And at that time, I was doing a lot of kind of being the liaison between the space and our IT department, because as you can probably guess, you know, any laptop powered for a space with laser cutters and, and all of that stuff um, needs very different software than our IT was used to dealing with. So that was like my first yeah. step into the space. And then, you know, when we opened, then we needed content. We needed a way to um, guide people through the process and get them involved. So then I started writing a lot of classes and working in the space. Um, right now, I'm kind of coordinating some of the um outside events. So, you know, we're planning our maker summit for next month and an open house at Southside Hackerspace in June that we're excited about. Um, And then we open to satellite locations at two of our neighborhood branches to serve adults. And so we're kind of trying to coordinate and figure out like how, how do we do that in a completely different space with completely different staffing? So I'm kind of like in, in all aspects of it. Yeah, and and you also um, help run makers in Chicago too, right? Yeah, so right now the website needs it it needs a revamp. Something happened to it. <laughs> I I run it with my colleague George. Um, he does a lot of the the coding for it. So I think what we want to do in this iteration is make it easier for educators to kind of figure out like what um, what spaces can offer in terms of like tours or uh, professional development. So I think I will be spending the next six months learning how that works because I've never done that before. (laughs) That's great. And, and, and when is, you also mentioned the maker summit, when's that? I just want to make sure people know know when that is too. It's Friday, May 10th. Um, We will be at DECA studio in Cermak center. I think the address is 629 West Cermak Road. So we've been doing this for a few years. I think this is our third or fourth year. Um, it's an event that we kind of picked up from someone else. I don't remember who, I think maybe MSI had done it before or there was something. And so, okay. you know, we try to meet twice a year and usually get anywhere from 20 to 40 people out kind of um, updating each other on on what's happening. And sometimes we try to take a, um, you know, dig into a project, like maybe the website, I'm hoping to get that as part of the agenda this time. Um, and then just talking about the new spaces that are, are cropping up. So like at the last summit, um, Teresa from the Chicago Tool Library had just launched her Google form, you know, uh, kind of trying to survey people and find out would you use tools from a tool library? What would you be looking for? Um, so we were able to get her to the summit and, you know, she got to introduce herself to a bunch of people. And so that was really exciting. So I'm always trying to keep an eye out for, you know, 
people that really need to be there and um, part of the yeah. conversation. Cool. So, so you're kind of like a centralizing force as, as all, I mean, <laughs> librarians, right? That's, that's kind of the, that is, you know, it's a centralizing resource and you are a centralizing force for maker things in um, Chicago. And I imagine that that, um, you know, that, that involves a lot of doing things for other people. Um, and so one of the ways that I like to kick off uh, this podcast when, when I interview everybody is, is by asking them what it is that they're doing for themselves, not for anybody else, but what are you making that's just just for you? That's a personal project. Um, and I often find that a lot of people on the podcast have a hard time answering that, <laughs> which is probably why I'm drawn to them is because, you know, they're involved and they're, they're trying to help. Um, but I also, you know, I, I, I like to I like to see what other people are doing. So what are you working on right yeah, now? Yeah, so I'm kind of working on two things. One is not 100% for myself, but um, I am in the middle of a learning design program at Northwestern. Um, I got I got really into trying to understand how we learn. And, you know, I guess some people call that pedagogy and in, I forget the adult word for that, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. Pedagogical. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, being in the space, I, I wanted, I wanted to create the best experience for people. And it took a while to learn that the best experience isn't an easy experience. It's, you know, one full of questions and, and mistakes and, um, decisions and choices. And so that's been, really interesting to me. And I don't know ultimately like what I want to do with that, but that's something that I feel like is teaching me a lot about my own learning. Like I'm realizing now how many missed opportunities, you know, through my early college career, like I should have been asking more questions and I should have been not afraid to, to make those mistakes. So, mm. you know, I know that now and I'm, it's a continual process of like just being braver in that stuff. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is I've, I've had a website for, you know, off and on since like 2000 when everybody had their own website. And so I'm trying to make a practice of blogging more regularly, just about things that I've made so I can kind of think about the process and, and again, the choices that I've made in that. And then, uh, I used to like <laughs> be deathly afraid of, of the idea of like having to Skype and like having to, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> having to do, do oh, webcam yeah. stuff. So I'm also trying to work on like yeah. kind of, um, kind of performing those, those blog posts a little bit just to get more comfortable with it. And mm. cause I, my first, um, my undergrad is in writing, like writing is my first like thinking and analyzing and all of that. And, um, so being able to kind of read the thing you wrote, it's like people need to do that. Like that's what I used to do at the UIC writing center and getting people to think about like, well, listen to what you just said. Um, it's so critical and yeah, it's been a good exercise for me. So I'm trying to kind of do that. And, um, I, I am such a dabbler. I just, I guess I am the ultimate generalist and I like to pick things up and kind of take a look at them. Okay. So you've, you said a couple things that I want to either point people mm -hmm. to, or, um, or ask you about, but one of the, one of the first ones that pops in my head is you're talking about in your undergraduate experience that you didn't ask mm -hmm. questions. Um, I'm curious why you, you must've thought about why that was or why, why you think what you think may have contributed mm -hmm. to that. What, because this is something that I see with a lot of uh, my college students and, and probably actually, if I look back at my undergraduate career, career, probably in my own undergraduate career too, and I think part of it for me was that I was a um, I was a first generation college student, so I didn't really know what to do even. Um, but but I see that with a lot of, of my students at, at DePaul as well, and they grow into it eventually. Uh, many of them do. But what do you, what do you think contributed to that for yeah, you? Yeah. So you know, I for the most part, you know, my my mom went to college for a few semesters. Um, she didn't finish. And so when it was time for me to go, you know, I, I had more of the first generation experience, you know, kind of going to the financial aid office and trying to figure out right. like, what does this mean? Like, what, what do I need to fill out? And um, so I think, you know, I was always described as a good student in that, I, I was very comfortable, I guess, with the ambiguity of like, I don't know this yet, but they say I'm going to figure this out. So I think sure. I kind of, I, I just, 
figured I would figure it out, which is the weirdest, like, looking back, like how arrogant (laughs) that I thought, like, oh, (laughs) you know, like, I'm just going to, through osmosis, I'm going to learn all of these things. Um, So I think part of it was thinking that I I would figure it out. Um, I was always very independent and, um, you know, I... I figured if I thought about it long enough or like I did the homework and, you know, my tests tests are designed for whoever can answer the question at that time. Right. Like they're not really, you know, yeah. write this scenario and, and how would this happen? Like that's specifically a writing test, but a regular exam is, is kind of, it's almost a no brainer, unfortunately. And, and tests told me that I, I could do all of this, you know, so I think that's the attitude I kind of walked in with and I didn't understand how important it was for the rest of the group, for all the learners in the room who are, you know, you're there to learn with those people asking those questions and kind of having those debates. Um, My school didn't have like a debate team. Um, I was on the school paper, but like that experience as fun as it was and as cohesive as it was for me to have a, a group I was with, like, you know, you're writing for a school paper. So they want, they want the list of names. So mom and dad can be proud of who's in the paper. They, they don't (laughs) want the like, cut, you know, controversial issue. Students are on either side on this topic. So I think a lot of that, um, you know, I was, I was confident for the wrong reasons. Um, And, and since then, you know, I've, I've been learning like, as, as a facilitator in the maker lab, um, standing in front of people and no one having a question is, uh, I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> is, is it that you, right. you don't understand this or you're not interested in it or you're absorbing it or, you know, that communication, I took it for granted, like how much everyone else relies on that. Like without that, no one knows what's going on in your head. So it's, it's, I think it's also like my introversion to kind of just like, Oh, you know, I got it. I'll get there eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. I mean, I think there's some value in, in doing it yourself and kind of, you know, thinking that you can Mm -hmm. figure it out, Uh, but it has to be balanced in some way by, by, uh, being inquisitive, mm-hmm. asking other people about things. And one of the things that's interesting about that, uh, do you have something yeah, to say? I was just thinking like I, I undervalued or took for granted um, what I could gain from others by asking those questions. I, you know, I just underestimated yeah. how much else is out there. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting connection to making in many ways. Um, because to me, what that means it, when you're asking questions is you're kind of making your ideas a little bit more tangible, mm-hmm. um, like a little bit more visible and that has a lot to do with like tinkering as as well, right? You're 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 getting the idea out of your head um, and into you know whatever material it is that you're working with, and and in a lot of ways that kind of tears down all these preconceptions you have about how the world mm-hmm. works too, right? So like I think that's the most powerful th- that that or perhaps it could be the, one of the more powerful things about um, both asking questions and, and tinkering is is your your manifesting you know your your ideas out out in the real world. And I, I mean, I can tell you it's still many times, even, even now where I'm guilty of, of, uh, <laughs> of, of thinking I know what's happening and then totally missing the mm-hmm. point um, because I didn't ask a question <laughs> or, or, um, or because I didn't work with the material and, and it turns out the material didn't want to work that mm-hmm. way. Um, so that's a, that's a really interesting um, point. And I wonder how you, um, at, at Harold Washington and, and, and in the workshops that you're, you're running and everything, how you convey that value or do you, um, to your, your students, um, to your audience? Yeah. So it's a, it's a continual effort because, you know, every day and every session is, it's a different variety of people. So, you know, to get people acclimated and comfortable, it, it really happens in a, like, you know, tell us about what brought you here today. Like, what are you interested in? You know, and we certainly have repeat visitors who um, they're great because they're able to provide feedback over time. And they also um, 
you know, they're, they're just so interested and they want to learn all of these things from, from different instructors and from different um, perspectives. And so they kind of bring like this stability to the, to the classroom. And I, I mean, stability as in like, you know, they're not, they're the unchanging faces because it's a little different from a class elsewhere where you might see the same faces for, you know, two months or three months. Um, yeah. So we we try to get people to dialogue about, you know, what is what is, are their goals? What are they working on? Um, we also offer open shop, which is a much different experience. So, um, you know, a guided workshop, we're trying to make sure people understand the process. And so when they bring their own idea to it, they'll have a better understanding of the the parts they kind of have to go through. Um, and then open shop, you know, you don't have to take a workshop to participate in open shop. And, um, that's mostly self-directed. I, we assist all along the way as much as anyone desires. Um, but that's, that's when you kind of get the real kind of conversations going, like as somebody's waiting for their print or someone's trying to design something. Um, other people walk through and they're curious. So they ask what you're working on. Um, and those conversations start to develop. And that's always really fun to see. I, I especially love when um, somebody wanders in and they start talking to someone who's working on a project and that person gives them the whole rundown, like the schedule and like which <laughs> class they should take. Um, it, like that feels yeah. so communal. Yeah. It sounds like you're talking about like, like the juxtaposition of structured and unstructured mm-hmm. time. Definitely. Um, as far as getting. Yeah. Work I done. think for newcomers, uh, um, yeah. they appreciate the structure. Uh, and then, you know, there are plenty right. of people who, who don't like structure in any form whatsoever and it's perfect for them. Yeah. I wonder, uh, you know, we do um, very similar things at, at, at DePaul and I mean, a lot of makerspaces have like, you know, an open hack night um, where anybody can come in and, and just hang out and talk. Uh, but then there are workshops and, and, and that structured time too. Um, but, but in both contexts, when I hear you talking about them, you're, you're talking about building like um, a community um, first, it, it sounds like, you know, and then, but the, the community revolves around the, the, the space. And, and oftentimes, you know, in spaces that, that don't succeed, um, you see um, the op, you know, the the flip, which is, um, uh, you know, a, a, you buy a bunch of tools, you put it in a space, and then you hope that the community somehow, like, um, <laughs> the tools build the community somehow. Yeah, right? and that's really um, hard because the tools can't yeah. talk or anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you you could try to make a robot or something <laughs> like that. That I I don't know. But but yeah, I mean, and, and so what is it about um, these spaces that makes community an intrinsic um, value uh, of them? What, why do they need community to, to thrive and succeed, do you think? Or am I making it? Uh, first of all, I should address, I'm making mm-hmm. an assumption here that this is true. But if it's, <laughs> so you could tell me, no, it's not true. But if it is true, what is it about them that, that? That makes that a, a significant yeah, component. Yeah, I think a part of that really is just the the exchange of ideas and knowledge. Um, you know, it's very hard for one person to know all of the things. And so you do come to depend on other people. And then you also realize, oh, wait, other people have great ideas for how I might approach this, um, which is like almost an unexpected incentive Right. Because like you are kind of just hoping to get an answer. But then once you have, you know, you get into a conversation, you see like what else you didn't see and what else you didn't know. And so I think that um, just it's almost like that quest for for knowledge kind of it. You have to talk to other people. You have to engage with other people. And then you know, then all of the things that we have in common kind of, you know, then they find their way into that conversation. Like, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I did play um, an RPG for a few years, World of Warcraft, you may have heard of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I played it too. <laughs> and so like, you know, you have these quests and you have, you have to, 
you have to work with other people to accomplish some of these things. And then, you know, hopefully a friendship kind of happens out of that. Or if nothing else, like you've learned something. And so I think that kind of, that is really integral to it. Um, you know, like again, with a library, you, you could just have a stack of, of books, right. And, and we have plenty of those. Um, but it's not just about having access to those books. Like we have the internet, um, you know, we haven't totally closed ourselves off from each other as a society, just because we can have things delivered to our door and, you know, watch movies. So it's that seeking and an exchange. Um, it's that added value that you can't otherwise obtain. Yeah. I want to give you an unsolicited book recommendation <laughs> that you may have already read. It's called Palaces for the People. Um, and it's about, uh, I mean, a lot of it revolves around libraries as institutions and why they're important for, uh, especially in, in, you know, in our present day um, for bring, keeping people together and um, for contributing overall to the success of a, of a community. So like the, the guy who wrote the book actually um, got his, he wrote his doctoral thesis on um, two neighborhoods in Chicago. I think it's Englewood and um, an adjacent one to Englewood. Uh, can't, uh, it doesn't come to mind. And um, I don't know if you remember the Chicago mm-hmm. heat wave in uh, yeah. And how so many people uh, died um, because, because of, of, you know, lack of the, the city's lack of, of infrastructure to, to support them. Um, but the two, the two t- uh, neighborhoods that he compared had similar demographics. Um, and yet one, uh, had a, a much higher instance of, of, of deaths, uh, than the other. And, um, it was, the, there were, so on, on the, by the books on the numbers, they looked identical. But when you actually walked in the neighborhoods, you could notice that they had more community spaces. They had, um, you know, libraries with vibrant um, uh, connections. Uh, and so w- what it, what he found was actually that, you know, those community spaces are, are literally important for people to live because they keep people checking in mm-hmm. with each other. Um, and so that kind of community component of, of libraries is, is, is super interesting to me. And it's super interesting that, that, that Harold Washington and, and now other, other libraries in Chicago, it sounds like, are, um, you know, building maker spaces. And I'm wondering how these, these wonderful community spaces, um, and I'm, now I'm thinking of them as entities that have thought, right, which is probably <laughs> a problem. But like, how do libraries think about maker spaces? How do, how do libraries justify these spaces? Um, because like in academic institutions, I get, you know, I get the I hear the question all the time from from other people at other schools, like, you know, how does this support curriculum? How, how you know, how does this um, this unstructured space support our goals? So how, how does a library think about that? Yeah, so I would say personally, the way I look at it as um, we have these we have these tools called computers, and most of us, you know, are. We're, we're not so familiar with how they work and what they can do. So, you know, we, we use them to pay our bills. We check our email. We say hi on Facebook. Um, and it's very easy to kind of um, overlook the fact that the cars on our streets, you know, are designed in software before they're made. And then, you know, there's a fabrication process. And, like, so everything around us is manufactured and and so, like, if you just want to use the manufacturing lens to kind of look at that, then it really opens up this connection between this little box that, you know, sits on your desk or is at the library or elsewhere and, like, the rest of the world. And I, I think it's a really beautiful thing to illuminate um, and to, like, let people know that, okay, maybe you're not going to be designing a car for Ford next month, but... There's there's a pathway for you to kind of explore these processes and kind of understand the world around you, right? Because like that's that's the library platform is like here's a bunch of information and knowledge for you to kind of understand where we've come through the through time, through the centuries, where we are now, and mm. some of the places that we hope to go. Like the current one book one Chicago is uh, do androids dream of electric sheep. Um, and I, of course, I'm a super Philip K. Dick fan, love sci-fi. And it's 
just amazing, you know, to kind of see some of the things that it's influenced and some directions that we're headed in. And it just, it, it's that continuity. So the, the technology and the activity around it are inviting everybody into this process. People who, um, for various reasons are, are not already part of the process, maybe just because it wasn't their career path or, you know, maybe they just happened to miss, you know, computer classes in school because they graduated a few years before that, or they had a job that just, you know, didn't involve it. Um, it's actually pretty common. Um, so it invites people into that process. Uh, and something that we've been doing in our maker lab, which um, has been a, a really interesting collaboration. Um, we have um, one of my colleagues is working on learning circles with peer-to-peer -peer university. And so that's kind of a series of, you know, however long two to six weeks of um, a topic. So, you know, she does social entrepreneurship with visitors at the library. They come and attend all those sessions. We've been able to do things like learning HTML and CSS, um, Java programming, uh, Android programming, and Python. And so that's another facet of like this technology where maybe you're, maybe you're not creating an object, but you're understanding a process that is working all around you yeah. and kind of illuminating that. And so having the laptops and technology to our specification rather than, you know, a dummy internet station means that we can also do this for people in a way that they couldn't do on their own on our computers because they're not, they're not set up for that. No one, you know, first of all, 10 years ago, that wasn't what we thought people would need to do. You know, we, I guess we thought everyone would have their own computers and, and they would, you know, figure out how to do this stuff on their own. And that's fine. Plenty of people do, but plenty of people also want to, to learn in a space, um, Maybe they're also not ready to sign up for a full semester at, you know, in academia to learn this thing. Maybe they're not sure how invested they are in it, but they can come to the library and test it out and decide then with more information than they had before that, yeah, yes, I love this. Or what was I thinking? Not interested. Let me try something else. <laughs> yeah. I think that's so cool because to to me that's um that's not just a skill that you're teaching them that's like that's really political in some ways to teach people that um that the thing that that the, they can have control of <clears throat> of the things around them because the things around them have just ha, have largely been made by um you know either nature of course <laughs> uh, or other other people right um and and that especially if they're made by other people that you're just looking at a system, whether it's complex or simple, that you can control, whether that system's like a manufacturing process or a political process. Um, and I, 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 I can't imagine that that's a mistake, but maybe maybe it's just baked or, or maybe that it's baked into it somehow. And when I say political, I don't mean like um, mm -hmm. partisan, right? I mean, that it's, it's, it's engaging in like a marketplace of ideas and, and, and teaching people how to have control of, of that marketplace is that so so in some ways that's a, that, that must be a, is that addressing what am i trying to get at well technology is so complex right now and so it's really cool to see that libraries are kind of exposing mm -hmm. technology and and unwrapping it for, for people um is that like a problem that you see when you have people come to your to, to your institution are are they um and, and then they go through your process of, you know, of, uh, you know your workshops or, or informal learning. Um, do they often walk away with like a, a stronger understanding of, of, of the things around them? Could you give me some examples? Yeah. So I can think of a couple different examples. So in one department I worked in, um, and this is a very <laughs> baseline example, um, we would provide ebook support over the phone. Right. So someone would get a Kindle for Christmas and they would be completely unfamiliar with how it worked. And and then you had to explain that, you know, yes, we have our library website, but no, just because the book is digital doesn't mean there are a million copies and you can always have one. Um, there's publishing licensing issues and digital rights management. So you can't have that one, but you can have this one. 
and but you still have to turn it in and so like that is a whole discussion around technology that i i kind of didn't anticipate but i was happy that i was informed enough and experienced enough to kind of share that with people and and give them that whole process so that you know sure like i'm sorry you can't get the uh, michelle obama book right now there are 200 people in line but it will come eventually and you know that's a whole thing um Right. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of always have that relationship where we're introducing people to um, introducing people with various levels of background and um, familiarity to these technologies. Um, another example might be kind of piggybacking on the ebook is um, a lot of libraries um, have done things like technology petting zoos, right? Where, um, yeah, I know. <laughs> I just, I love that. I love that. It makes me so happy. <laughs> so pe- we know that people are curious about technology. So, you know, we'll try to scrap together our budgets and, you know, get some different digital cameras or e-readers or, um, you know, tablets that kind of facilitate some of the things people want to do. Um, we let them try it out, see if they like them. Um, and then again, that's another way for them to make an informed decision. So like, if you think about the Apple store in a lot of ways, like they're kind of, I feel like they're kind of doing what, what we've more traditionally done, which is kind of providing that like information space around the thing. Um, so then when you get to a space like the lab, um, you know, you, I've, We've definitely talked to plenty of people who who did end up purchasing their own 3D printer afterwards. And to me, like that's that's not our goal, but it means this person was curious enough, they learned enough about it, and they were certain and they felt confident in their choice. And then they came back to let us know. Um, and then, you know, they they kind of yeah. start going down their own path of of learning and bringing knowledge back to us. Like that happens constantly where people we haven't seen in a while drop by and tell us what they've been working on, which is always really exciting. Um, And then, you know, I remember from the Java learning circle, you know, just being able to say like, this powers your microwave (laughs) or, you know, some, something else in your house, like (laughs) you could do something more fun with it, but like, this is all around you. Um, and then I was just recently uh, at the Digital Fabrication Conference and um, the executive vice president of Local Motors was talking and he said something about how 5G would make such an enormous, it would be a huge change and exciting advancement for autonomous driving or, or self-driving vehicles. And I, I sat yeah, there and right. I didn't understand at first and because I don't. I wasn't paying attention to this conversation, you know, prior to this moment. And it took me, you know, like about a minute kind of playing with the idea, like, why does it make such a difference? And I got really excited because I thought, you know, this is, this could be a program at the library, like where, you know, maybe we can demonstrate like the difference in latency and like, you know, I I don't know what that looks like yet, but that's something that I think somebody walks in and, they're wondering, like, why should I care about this? And we can say, here are some reasons you might consider caring about this. Will you ultimately? That's up to you. But here, here are the highlights. Sure. Yeah, that's, you know, and I don't know if, if you're familiar, you probably know the Citizens Band too, right? See, like CB radio, like shortwave mm-hmm. um, radio. Um, but I, I recently read, and I can't remember the name of it, that they're looking at opening up a whole new band that would be essentially like low grade Wi-Fi everywhere. Um, so, so, you know, 5G is, is you'd have to, I mean, that that's a service, right? That's a band that you'd probably end up having to pay a company to have mm-hmm. access to. Um, but, but there's, there's another band that's, that's similar to, to citizens band. And I wish I, I, I remember the name of it right now um, where it's going to open up um, this possibility of everybody being able to access, not, not, you know, high bandwidth, um, uh, mm-hmm. data, but, but, you know, good enough, right. To, to transmit data, um, across, across regions. So that's, um, uh, just a, just kind of like a thought that, 
popped off uh, when you were talking about about uh, 5G networks too. Um, so um, got, I've got so many other questions. First of all, you mentioned uh, you you have a website and you've started blogging <laughs> again. Um, and so I started. So it's it, in the gloam.com, yes, right? That is, is that correct? correct? <laughs> yeah, and that's um, like in the and then it's g l o a m dot com. Um, and you've got all sorts of stuff here, photography, vectors, makes, blog. What is this part of your um, little bit of doing everything? What's uh, <laughs> what's going yeah, on here? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I've, as I mentioned before, like I'm halfway through a program at, um, at Northwestern. And so part of the other program is like social media strategy. And I was thinking about my website and thinking like, well, this is a disaster because it's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but right. I kind of think like that's that's just my generalist face. Like that's that's where I practice and kind of tinker. So like the website itself um, was a lot of fun to do. Actually, like I hand coded it with CSS Grid. Um, and, like I had just heard about CSS Grid. I had you know I had dabbled in CSS two and HTML three years ago. Sure. So like I was trying to do Bootstrap and like I wasn't really, I wasn't digging it too much. And then CSS Grid was there and that was so fun. And then I realized like, well, if I am still going to blog, I want you know I might as well use WordPress for that. To do otherwise would be insane. Um, and so it is kind of just like, it's my playground. It's my collection of yeah. like the, the, some of the things that I've picked up and kind of looked at and like photography is a thing I kind of got into when I made my very first website because I didn't want to keep using other people's images. Like I didn't think they were going to sue me, but <laughs> you know, I wanted to respect right. copyright. So I started taking pictures. So I had like background images and like years later, I'm sure I've taken over 10,000 photos and I've, de I've definitely gotten better in, in framing. It's intuitive rather than, you know, I can describe everything that's going on in this composition. Um, but it, it's kind of one of those yeah. things where like I went down a path and kind of figured out how to do things. And I learned a lot along the way. And here's some of that. Right. That's funny. Cause it's like you, <laughs> you, you know, you, you need, uh, oh, I, I need pictures for my website. And then 20,000 images later, yep. got, like, you know, it's a, that's like a, a, you know, I do that. I find myself doing that too. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the same kind of thinking, like, you know, I don't want, I, I, I want to contribute to this marketplace um, rather than just take from it. And then, you know, uh, 20,000 things later, I'm, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm yeah, no, that's, that's a good example, um, because um, when Creative Commons came out, I was really excited about that. And like, I still am. Um, but, you know, I went to Flickr and I changed all my photos to be like, anyone can use these. And like, I don't I don't imagine very many people did because there are just way too many photos on Flickr. But yeah, that same idea of like, what can I put back? Like, I, I'm not just taking like, here's something that you can use. So um, for the Maker Lab, we have a, a Google site wiki that we've used since day one because we need somewhere for our things. And like all of our handouts are on there. And are they amazing and perfect? No, but they're a starting point. And like we tell people, you're welcome to use these if you want. Because um, I know how, how like, oh, my God, and scary it was at first to be like, we don't we have machines, but like, what do we do with them? And so that that's kind of the same idea there. Right. Right. So you see, so you, but you, so you, you'd have machines, you've got a wiki, you've got this space. Um, and it, I got to imagine, uh, you know, because it's in the, the context of a library um, and you're familiar with all sorts of maker spaces, obviously, you know, a lot of the people in Chicago, I, I'm wondering what are, what's different about your maker space and a library maker space and what some of the challenges that you yeah. face are. Um, first, where we're extremely lucky is we have the support of the Chicago Public Library Foundation. So they've been able to help us staff this space, which means that when people come in, you know, they're not kind of, they're usually not waiting very long for anyone to assist them. So that's been enormous. And that's definitely helped us grow. And that's not true of, of a community maker space generally, like that community space is 
is a labor of love and you know people are there on their off time which they probably don't have very much of so we're extremely fortunate there um we we do see ourselves as an entry point into or one of many entry points into the maker ecosystem locally and more broadly um so that's to say you know the complexity that we can deal with as it varies, right? So depending on the project that someone wants to explore or wants to make, we we may not be suitable for that. Or even the hours that they might need access, you know, we're not open on Sunday. Uh, it's just too hard for us to staff. Um, so we do consider ourselves more of a starting point. Um, and we've, but because we can tell people about these other spaces, um, where at least like, well, you know, if you need this kind of access or like these kind of electronics or you need to solder this thing or what have you, try these other spaces out. Um, there is a bit of a, you know, you can use our space almost entirely for free. If you attend a workshop, there's no charge for that. And if you are making something during open shop, there's a nominal charge for the, the materials or supplies. Um so that can present kind of um, like that's great for us and it's great for our patrons. But when they're ready to to move on to that next step, um, you know, there might be a little bit of sticker shock. Um, but again, the there are different models working out there. So, um, you know, sure. people have to, to do what will keep the doors open. And, you know, they also have to adapt if they're not pulling in the audience they had hoped to pull in. So it, that works two ways, at least. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, and it kind of connects in a little way. You mentioned Apple before, mm -hmm. right? And I wanted to mention though, I think you were being, oh, maybe not on purpose. You're being very kind to them because they're building these resource spaces that, that are strictly meant to, you know, to, to get money from people, right? They're, they're very capital driven um, uh, spaces. And so I think a lot of that probably drives the, the learning experience. And so it's probably less um, educational ultimately in my opinion. Um, but what, no, oh, I, I do agree on that. Um, but I would say my comparison is like when someone's trying to figure out how to work their iPad versus when someone was trying to figure out how to use their Nook or Kindle, at least the iPad people kind of had a place to go to. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So there's, there's a place to go to. Um, but I, I it, this kind of leads me to a question about, um, okay. So, there was a um, a summit of people who run makerspaces at the White House um, during the about like the the waning years of the Obama administration um, that I attended, and at one of the sessions I was in, somebody I, I don't remember, you know, I don't have a name or I don't even remember where they were from, had mentioned um, at some point some for profit makerspace company is going to come and take over all the makerspaces, right? And and you're kind of talking about you know the sticker shock and and things like that. And I think there's there's it, it might be a good topic to bring up for this because there are, you know, if you're the insertion point and you're kind of pointing people to other spaces, there are a lot of different um, uh, models for makerspaces out there. And primarily, primarily, uh, those are geared around um, what kind of institutional values they're couched within, and whether that's um, you know K twelve or academia or nonprofit and for profit. And um, I, I, I'm wondering how you, if your patrons are saying okay, you know, this is the, the starting point. This is the insertion point for me. And now I'm looking to do what's the next thing. How do you identify what to, to connect them with um, out, outside of the library? Yeah, so that is mostly going to be project-based, like what we can understand from what they're describing, what they want to do, right? Because even that can be mysterious. You know, you, you say you want to do X, but maybe that really involves a, B, and C, and you don't even realize it yet. So, you know, when we're making a referral, mm. we're we're doing it based on what we grasp the scenario is. Um, and we have, you know, I, I think probably four or five spaces that come to mind immediately, which are the, you know, the Pumping Station 1 and Southside Hackerspace. Um, and then, you know, if, if they're trying to, if, if some people do come in because they're they want to develop a prototype and 
And so then maybe that's right. more of a Polsky Center at University of Chicago um, or, you know, so there's there's a variety of things that people could be doing. Um, and we'll try to give them that information too. Like, you know, because we have so many computers in the space, it's not that hard to then go to the website, pull it up, say, here's where it is. Here's Here are the um, free public events that anyone can go to if you want to check it out first, you know, before signing up for anything. And then here is what the actual memberships are according to them or according to this page, you know, since that stuff can change. But I, I don't think that changes as frequently as it could. Sure. Okay. So, so if I have, if I'm, I'm at Harold Washington library and I'm mm -hmm. like, what's next? Um, one way is, you know, you, you, you point me at a, a makerspace. I got to imagine that there are some, like I have, I have some really favorite books that I, I people ask me, how do I get into making or, which is an odd question <laughs> to begin with, right? Because it's like such a human thing already. But I think what they're asking is like, how do I get to the point of, you know, what you're doing or what other people I'm, I want to emulate are doing? And there are some books like David Pye has a great book called The Nature and, and Art of Workmanship that I really like. Tim Ingold has a book called Making Art, Archaeology, Anthropology and Architecture. And then there are some philosophy books that I might throw in there. But but so, OK, so sorry. So to, to dial back, if I'm at, I'm at Harold Washington Library, what's next? How do I get involved? One way is to go to makerspaces. What are some other resources, books or otherwise that you might point people towards? That is a fantastic question because we are still kind of like working on that piece, oddly enough, like six years in. So, you know, our I know, right. <laughs> our lab is on the third floor and the third floor is a like it's a highly trafficked area that doesn't really have its own collection of anything. But if you go to the fourth floor and the eighth floor, they have like the most amazing collection of um, public domain art, um, architecture, uh, digital design, um, fashion, like all of the things are up there. So we've been we've had an interesting relationship with the rest of the building just because of that, because we're not near those things. And because of the way right. people pass through the library. So we ask people how they found out about the lab. And many, 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 the majority of people say, I walked by it. There are some people who say, yeah, there are some <laughs> people who say, I Googled Chicago Makerspace and they found us. And that's always amazing to me because they, they knew exactly what they were looking for. But libraries and shelves, you know, like serendipity is our thing. Like that's our our quality that would be our fragrance if we had one. Um, and so people just stumble upon things, which is fantastic. But also like, how do you strategize besides like being out in the open? So we do have like, uh, we keep, you know, make magazine in, in the space um, and a few other, a few other books, but we don't have a great um, space to have a collection at this time. I'm, keeping my fingers crossed. Um, and then right now, one sure. of the things I do want to work on is uh, I want to kind of revise some of those earlier handouts to simplify them now that more of us understand what we're doing. Like what they look like is more like the script for the instructor rather than like, I'm going to give you this sheet of paper and you're going to figure out what to do based on this. Um, and part of that, I want to include more of these works because there are a lot more out now than there were when we first opened anyway. Like, um, you know, not philosophically or, right. or like the hands-on making tools or, you know, like actual design handbook, like those were definitely there, but um, there are a lot more resources now and it, it would be nice to, to build that complement. So yeah, we're actually still working on that. Oh, cool. Um, and, and that's, so that's, in an interesting kind of thing, a lot of the the, the literature and 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 uh, resources that I I point people to are 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 relatively new, and so there's there must be some kind of a a reinvigoration mm -hmm. happening, right? Um, and I want to plug. There's also um, so there's Make Magazine. Uh, uh, Drew Fastini, who mm -hmm. I think you know as well, um, pointed me to this other magazine called Hackspace Magazine. Nice. Um, which is released by the Raspberry Pi Foundation and can actually be downloaded in EPUB, Mobi, or PDF format for free online. Um, 
So that's like a super cool, and, and then I think they have a print edition too, but that's a super cool resource. Um, and, you know, so they're like these, these pragmatic resources, like what are people making? They're also these philosophical resources. Um, but a lot of the ones that I've been tapping into are, you know, probably within the last 10, 10 years or so, they've been published um, 10, 15 years. Um, and and I, I wonder if that's an extension of like some other grander reinvigoration um, and, and where you perhaps see that, is, is that it? accurate first of all and is there is, is this what's this where's it coming from if so and where, where could it possibly be going because we're seeing libraries building these spaces now and uh, you know academic and k-12 institutions all sorts of educational institutions and i was at mit a couple of years ago for a conference and they showed like their capstone class for their engineering students um like 10 years ago and there were no artifacts there were no objects because they were just making things on the computer so there's a reinvigoration of the value of making stuff in all of these institutions um i think at least where's it coming from and and, and where could it possibly be headed particularly for libraries but but for other institutions yeah, too. so i think if you talk to any library that is creating a new space for a makerspace um i think they will also tell you that they are trying to make sure that that space will be usable for a different purpose in 5, 10, 15 years, whenever whenever our web of values and priorities shift. So, you know, the idea being that what is the what will serve the community um, and what will meet their needs then. So I think we're in... We're in a moment where, you know, you mentioned um, the other maker spaces and like academia. And one of the things that I do here is, you know, once once the students graduate, they lose access. And then what do they do then? Um, just this week on, I think, Chicago Tonight, uh, they were talking to an instructor at the School of the Art Institute who teaches students how to make neon signs. And, you know, they were kind of bemoaning that same issue as, well, I can't, you know, I, I guess you could go and work for a neon sign maker or you, or you don't. So what he's doing is he's opening a co-op specifically for that. Um, and I, I thought, you know, that's such a, that's, you're looking out into the world, you, you, I identified a need and now you're going to figure out how to do that. So I guess like ultimately over this is a different understanding uh, or, or it coincides with an understanding of design and and user centered design and kind of like all right well we can't just keep making the same stuff right like no one there are a lot of things that people are just i don't i don't care about that thing there's nothing interesting about that thing like what on the one hand like what can what can capitalism and and product developers and designers what how can they really excite and delight us and they're going to do that by trying to figure out what it is we we desire you know that we don't even realize we want and to an extent like that's coming to people too because you know okay great here's here's a machine that can make the thing you can make it now does anyone want it <laughs> is is it is right, it bringing delight right. to people besides, you know, or, or, um, yeah, go ahead. No, the other question is, uh, well, at least in my mind that the challenge we face is not just now, um, does it excite and delight people, but, um, uh, does it destroy the world totally. around us as well? Which capitalism isn't really good at at caring about quite yet. Um, but I, that you know, I uh, this is just a side note. But that's a value that I, I feel is is incumbent on me, uh, somebody who teaches design to to get across to students. Yeah. As well, so you know? I mean, there there's a um, a confluence of all these questions and things that we're kind of puzzling over right now. Um, just this morning, I was listening to the radio and which I listen to on my phone, even though I have a radio at home. <laughs> but, um, you know, WBZ was talking about an, uh, a pilot engineering class at UIC, which kind of tries to bring together all of these different pieces. So there I think the topic is probably autonomous uh, self-driving cars. And so they're bringing in like the, the programming part, the um, transportation design um, and, and philosophy, right? So like these, these things have been connected, they've been separated, 
we can reconnect them. We can think holistically about the things that we're educating each other on or discovering or, or whatever. Like we know that there are more implications than just what, what we see in front of us, but it's like you just said, you know, it's, it's up to us to kind of bring those things together. Um, and so that, that does sound like the next big project kind of, or, or collective consciousness or whatever is, is how do we bring these things together so that, um, we know, you know, we're, we're too smart. We know better. Like, let's look at this. Let's, let's put these pieces together. We can do it. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, I, I sometimes worry that we'll we'll do it in the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> this is again just a digression, but you know, there's there's this whole um, movement of creating of of, per, of um, as- ascribing personhood to non-person entities, objects, right? So, like corporations is is the the probably the mm-hmm. the well, most well-known example with Citizens United. Um, but then there are other examples like we're polluting our our, our Great Lakes. And so there are cities that are trying to give lakes personhood, and I often I often think that 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 we're we're um, we're very smart and we're trying to solve a problem, but making everything around us into people um, <laughs> is it frightens the hell out of me because there's um that, that's like a navel gazing you know inward facing future that I dystopia that I am um. Anyways, I digress. I digress. Um, so <laughs> that kind of. So that leads me to kind of my last question, because you'd mentioned um, before, like, uh, you know, you were talking about uh, cars and cars being part of the manufacturing process. And and, and you're kind of, in, in, I thought, going towards this idea of technology is driving our values. And then we started talking about systems thinking and things like that. But I wanted to ask you, just kind of like as a, as a last question, how do you, and, and as, a, as, as somebody who's running a makerspace in, in, in a library, you know, there's there's one of two ways that you can run a space, and and one is that your values drive the technology, but oftentimes we don't see that happening, right? Oftentimes we see that that um, because we have a cell phone, um, that technology that we have with us changes how we behave, and and in many ways changes what we value. Um, just by way of example, right? So so how do you take that space and and and, and create, not create. Um, encourage people to be responsible citizens who are using technology towards their ends rather than allowing technology to use them? So I think the, uh, that is a big question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I I think some of that does come down to the space itself and the way we encourage you to engage. So we have these fantastic computers and I, I wish every library location had them at this time. They don't currently. Um, but, you know, when you come in and drop by and have a seat, you know, we ask you what you're working on. We expect that you are exploring something. So sure, you can have a YouTube video on if it's showing you how to do something in Fusion. You know, that's not a big deal, but these are not here for um, writing a paper. They're not here for looking at Facebook. They're here to, to be doing something. Um, I would say that's one piece of it. Um, and then we, we get into, um, so I would prefer to have as much open source software on the machines as possible. I want to encourage people to continue exploring on their own time if, if they have such access um, and to kind of, you know, figure out some of the things they want to develop. Um, I personally try not to get locked into specific software, which uh, is kind of, yeah. you know, that's almost like an, an, a not true statement, right? Like I, I'm locked into Inkscape because Inkscape is the open source software. However, it doesn't limit me yeah. from what do I want, what I want to do with the things that I've made. So kind of that like interoperability piece, I think is really important. Um, and I, that's kind of like the underlying subversive library message which is like you should be able to take the thing that you own anywhere you want that you created anywhere you want like you you shouldn't have to figure out how to 
break a digital rights lock so that you can do a thing like something like this. Again, going back to like the Creative Commons, and and that's something that we actually do mention in every workshop with people um, because they're in a learning environment. We discuss fair use, how that works, and that you know if you want to start exploring this and and making a lot of something, like you need to figure out how to create something original. Um, but I, I guess I think of it more as an ideas and and rights space rather than a technology. Um, it, this is this is a vehicle for the other thing, you know, like it's it might. Yeah, it could be something totally different in five to 10 years. But like, what are the underlying principles that are going to be really important is that it's yours and you can take it anywhere and that, um, you know, we we gain collectively when everyone's ideas are out there because, you know, we've for too long, it's, it's been an elite group of people whose ideas are out there, but like everyone has something to contribute. And that's what we're really trying to do. Right on. That's an excellent place to, to, to start wrapping up. So um, one of the things that I, uh, I like to do at, at the end of the podcast is, um, uh, ask, you know, what, what do you want to point people at? What do you think people should check out? Um, websites, otherwise, what do you, what do you got? <laughs> I, I might. Um, so I just discovered open educational resources, which everyone else, of course, calls OERs. And that they're, yeah. it's, I know it's like, of course, this is where I would go with this. I, I don't know. Um, so it's really exciting yeah, yeah. to me because I want to look at like how we can add some of those components to our workshops because none of us are by day, you know, I don't teach 3D design or CAD at a university, but with the open educational resources on like skills, commons, and the other site that I can't think of right now, um, you know, you have instructors who are sharing their, their presentations, their syllabus, um, and, and those things. And so I think, you know, it's great that we have websites like Skillshare and lynda.com and Coursera and all of that stuff. It's out there. If you can afford it, that's fantastic. Um, if you're not sure if you want to do it, or if you are like kind of, you know, you you're trying to share content with people, then like an OER might be a better choice. Um, and if you're making great stuff, maybe you should contribute and put something up there. Like, I know it's, it's hard, yeah. like that's not a luxury everyone has, but again, you know, let's, let's advance each other in whatever ways we can. So yeah, the OERs I'm, I'm kind of really interested in right now and I want to learn a lot more about them. Cool. And you're on Twitter at, uh, Oh, what a J E Z E B E L E E. I don't know how to pronounce that. How, do you, so, how would you pronounce that? This is a handle, you know, back in the day, we used to call these things handles. <laughs> um, it was my mashup yeah. of Jezebel and Jubilee because I love Jubilee from the X-Men. So that it's jezebel -y. Oh, yeah. Yep. Fireworks, right? <laughs> that's my Yeah, that's one of my favorites, too. Um, cool. All right. And, and uh, in the gloam .com yep, that's again, me. Right? Cool. All right. Well, Sasha, thanks so much for joining today. I appreciate your time. Um, and uh, I, I love getting your perspective on, Thank on you. all this stuff. I can't wait to chat again. That about wraps it up for session 21 of This Should Work, an interview with Sasha Neri of Chicago Public Library and Harold Washington Library. Big thanks to Sasha for joining. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, Check us out on iTunes, leave us a comment, subscribe, and share with all of your friends. That also wraps it up for our Educational Makerspace series. So thank you all for listening to that, and keep your eyes peeled for session 22 when it comes around. Okay, talk to you all next time. Bye.